You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's really important to emphasize that holding your own isn't just, even though the title is holding your own with difficult personality traits, holding your own is not like I'm the victim in this dynamic, right? And that's why I mentioned how easy it is to get self-righteous, to get judgmental, to get critical. Holding your own is also, what is your own attachment style? What is your own strategy when you get upset? And how much awareness do you have of it so that you stay in a relational way instead of your nervous system becoming overreactive? So holding your own is takes a lot on yourself to go, why am I all of a sudden becoming critical and self-righteous over you and feeling justified rather than going, whoa, I need to calm my own system and stay relational and see what I know about you in my history and hold you in that loving, caring, relational way. And that's not always easy. This is Holding Your Own, a series from Therapist Uncensored that aims to deepen and broaden security when faced with challenging personalities. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. At the beginning of the last season, we talked about beginning to weave in a little bit more about specific traits, characteristics that are difficult. We had several episodes on narcissism. This one will be on borderline. And all of this, we've been really interested in it because of the strain that we're under in our culture and really wanting to put a hand underneath people's capacity to be able to understand and sort out some of these more difficult dynamics. So even today, we aren't pointing fingers. We're not name calling. We're not saying that narcissist over there or, oh my gosh, she's so borderline. We're also not diagnosing because we can't do that over the air, right? But we are going to go deeply into the themes of these different difficult personalities, the causes, and what to do about it. First thought is like, when you hear the term borderline personality, what comes to mind? And a lot of times it has to do with reactivity, big emotions. Unfortunately, it's very stigmatized because used to, therapists didn't know how to treat it, so we basically... We put it in a cluster of personality disorders that we don't know. We didn't have the technology to treat really well. And so it was a little bit of a right away diagnosis, like, oh, you know, she's just borderline, that kind of thing. And I hate that. I hated it then. And I'm happy to say now that we know a lot more about it. That is not the case anymore. As a matter of fact, when I say it, what I'm thinking is that it is an emotional reactivity problem. You can see it on an fMRI. So basically in brain scans, there's a specific pattern related to the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex that point to this. So a lot of times this can be trauma-induced. You can see on an fMRI an increased reactivity. So there's a massive emotional spikes and there's less of the cortical and the prefrontal cortex. That's a 
ridiculously oversimplified way of saying it, but it's actually true that this is something that is hardwiring. And that's good because it means that we are much better now at knowing what to do with it. But since this is not a podcast about therapy and the diagnosis per se, we're really wanting to engage people around when you have this reactivity or if you're with someone that is just frustrating in their reactivity, these might be some things to think about. You know, also talking about the association with the word manipulative and borderline, and oftentimes those go to get, you know, people pair that as if that somebody's high intense emotionality is intentionally manipulative to get a reaction from other people. And that can induce a lot of anger and rage and reaction, like you're trying to manipulate me. And it's such important what you're saying. We're talking about a neurological intensity that creates the overreactivity and the hypersensitivity. It's not a choice. It's a very painful outcome for somebody struggling with this. Painful for them and painful for people that are close to them, for sure. And more about this issue of manipulation. We'll say it like it is. What's manipulative, consciously manipulative, are in different kind of cluster categories. Next time, we're going to be talking about malignant narcissism and antisocial. That is an intentional misuse of power. It's intentionally trying to change your behavior. Intentional act of manipulation to gain power in favor. That's right. And the truth is we manipulate people all the time, right? But we're usually manipulating, you know, like I want to get you to get me some ice cream or whatever it is. You know, That's a great distinction. Manipulating in more of an overt way, but it's in a relational way. It's, right. it's in the... I'm going to manipulate it, you to love me. <laughs> in a mutually respectful way, which is not the outcome when we get to talking about malignant narcissism. Yeah, exactly. And most people, when you say the word, this is, you know, we're, we're defending this notion of, I don't even like calling it borderline because of the stigma attached to it. So I think I'm going to move towards just calling it this high reactivity, but that it's really associated with that word. And we really want to decouple it because it is not manipulative. It isn't a conscious act. It is absolutely not. When you're in it, when you're having the reaction, it is all that you know. It is all that is true. So here's a little bit of a scenario of kind of how the reactivity works. So just real quickly, like there's this idea of this lazy amygdala and what that means. The amygdala is what's sort of scanning for danger. This is so oversimplified, but it's normally on at like a three, let's say on a scale of one to 10. Like it's, you know, we always, our brain is always assessing the environment. And so a little radar is going around and it's usually telling us everything's okay. And a lot of times we're not even recognizing that it's censoring, but it is. Absolutely not. So if I walk up Neuroception. to... If you think about somebody walking up towards your back while you're sitting here talking, you're not aware of that. You're not thinking, is somebody... Why? But all of a sudden, you can feel, even thinking about it, that little bit of chill in your body, that's there because your amygdala is scanning even when you don't recognize it so that you sense some danger. So that's the point of just the average three. Yeah, it's always under our awareness. And it is responding to something that is real. You know, it might be like, I think of it like a disturbance in the universe. Like you can suddenly see a feeling come over someone's face and it's like, oh, they suddenly shut down. That's what's supposed to be happening. So imagine a dog laying down, sort of snoozing in the room and you come in, you know, when everything's working right, the dog, maybe one of his right ear lifts up. He might halfway open an eye, kind of check or sniff in the air, (laughs) kind of sees what's going on. You go over to him, you touch him, and he just rolls on his back and lets you pet his belly, right? Because he's been scanning and he already knows what's happening. And he already knows you're safe, you're familiar. 
what the lazy amygdala looks like. I'm so self-conscious right now about pejorative language that even the term lazy, I'm like, I don't know if that's the right way. But basically, if we think of overreactivity, the dog is snoozing. Somebody comes in and it doesn't hit their radar. So they're not doing the assessment that they should be doing. And so you come over and you touch them and then whoop, there's this big reaction. Big startle response. It's, or it's either startle or anger or just like it becomes a bigger deal than it would have been had the scanning been happening appropriately. So what that looks like in human world is there may be like overly trusting and then pulling away. That would be one example. It's a great example about what can happen in the over-trusting way, not, not sensing, not being able to pick up signs, because there are a lot of signs that we take unconsciously and consciously when we meet somebody that says that person is trustworthy, and you really can have an amygdala that's, that's been cut off and not in tune to that. Right, and so again, in real life, what that might mean is I'm in love with you, and then you don't call me when I think you're supposed to call me or you're not, whatever it is. There's something that would normally be a disappointment, but it registers in my body as an eight or a nine. And probably in the family feeling tone of some sort of abandonment or something invasive, like another, or being left, basically. Well, help me make the jump, Sue, from the lazy amygdala. How does one jump from a start like over-trusting to then that feeling of mistrust and aggravation. What's the ride there? So the ride is like, for example, normally if I'm assessing all the way through, then I'm going to more easily be able to remember the longevity of our relationship. So we're going along and something unusual happens and you drop out of whatever. I say text because everybody's doing that, right? But you drop out of communication. Now, if I'm intact, kind of, if I'm really using all of my senses, I have this history and I hold on to that and I have a future and I can hold on to that like, oh, she'll pop back up or something will happen. Or if I'm not responding and we have a history, then you're going to go, oh, she must have gotten busy because she usually would respond. So you're incorporating. Right. Or something may have happened. Like I'm beginning to use my prefrontal cortex to kind of evaluate what's happening. And I have room to do that because I, I can begin to reflect and wonder, but that's holding the whole picture. And if I'm in a state, so we could even like a, if I'm in a preoccupied state, let's just call it that way. It is a little easier. Then it's just the feeling that hits me is danger. And then everything is danger. I've lost history. I've lost future story follows state. So because my body does this, then I'm going to make up a story that like, oh, you never cared anyway. And, you know, I've been taken for this ride. And all of a sudden, we're on a whole other planet than we would have been otherwise if I had been able to hold things all the way through. So that's the part that you're going to experience if I'm the one that didn't respond to the text. I might experience rage, hostility, accusations, and it can be like, what just happened? Like, what just happened? And, and so it's a startle response in return to that. When we're in it, we're consumed and we feel like that's everything. So to us, it makes sense. By us, I'm saying all of us that are in that reactive moment. It doesn't look anything other than, like, I feel justified in my thoughts. This is why we're saying it's not intentionally manipulative. The overreaction or the what would feel right. Or the, I can't believe you did this to me. I shouldn't have trusted you in the first place. 
and it really easy to elicit in the other person, like, I cannot believe you're saying that about me. Like, what are you talking about? And now I'm going to... It's very provocative. Right. So the reaction is very tempting to appeal to rational in the sense that, and how can you say that about me? Are you kidding? I always call. And so now I'm talking about me in this justifiable way. Like, I can't even believe you're doing that. That's ridiculous. Which is just going to make sense to me because I'm already super aroused. And now we're in a big old fight. Right. Because now I've just affirmed to you that I'm not trustworthy. you're a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) Because I didn't attune to the fact I didn't call. I'm defending myself instead of being caring. And so now we can feel how that vicious cycle can spin. Right. And it is really painful because we want to emphasize that when you're in it, you're fully in it. Again, with care and with treatment and even with age, there's some evidence that just over time that probably our body wears out and or we accumulate more information. Whatever happens, we tend to get a little better. And with therapies and things like that, this is very treatable. This is actually, we kind of have a really good sense what to do about this now. But for you that might be in a relationship, you're not in therapy. So let's talk about that. And we know when you read sort of a symptom list of what it means to have borderline characteristics, you're going to read angry outbursts, you're going to need high sensitivity. And and instead of knowing what's going on in the body and the experience, let's say a little bit more about kind of what that looks like from the list perspective. It's also like an uneven identity, like one minute I'm into this and one minute I might feel this and I'm very swayed by who I'm with, for example. Right. There's a lack of a sense of an identity development. And a common thing is because of the reactivity, self-harm, self-harm gestures and self-harm behaviors is part of it. And to talk about that for a minute, because the self-harm, to try to understand that in self-harm behaviors, when you are talking about high reactivity, it's not just high external reactivity. It's high reactivity in your body. That's such a good point, Anne. It's so much energy in the body that it feels very, very painful. It feels painful to feel rejected. You're anticipating it. You can't trust. And the feelings of always watching for abandonment and rejection Rejection and abandonment is deeply painful at our core. And if we experience it so frequently and so often through the fear, through anticipation, our bodies are feeling so much energy inside. So part of the self-harm literally is to release energy. It's to let it go. It's to let it go, you know, get those opiate receptors on. It also may be to draw you in. Yes. And later we're going to talk about what, you know, what makes it worse and what makes it better. And this will be really relevant from that perspective. Right. But it's also important to remember, because sometimes people with that have had high reactivity, borderline traits, can go to active self-harm or threats of suicidality. And we always want to take that seriously. It's really easy to... It's dangerous. It is dangerous. It's really easy to feel like, especially... If somebody's going to be left and they say, I'm going to harm myself, it's really easy to only see that as manipulative and enticing and to be able to get you back. And it's, we're not saying that there aren't elements of that because of the fear of abandonment, but it's also very real experience always to be taken seriously. Exactly. Because even if it is just this high reactivity, it's less about me wanting to really hurt myself or to die. I can accidentally do that in my gestures. However... It's something very different. Like if a very depressed person who is not, doesn't have borderline dynamics begins to talk about wanting to just have things end, you know, that despair where it's, you can feel it in your stomach that it's like you get, I mean, this is for me, 
like actual adrenaline. Like you can just feel it's a very different thing when you're hearing somebody speak, when you're hearing somebody speak of it. And it's just a really, it's a different quality versus you get the call and I never want to caricaturize it. They say enough to intend to make you afraid. Like, thank you so much. You've been such a great therapist. Just wanted to tell you, you know, anyway, we're talking about suicidality really early. I didn't mean to necessarily jump into this, but it's kind of an extreme example. So I'll just give you an example of what I tend to do is if someone is calling me saying that they might hurt themselves, then that's outside of my hands. Now we're over my pay grade and I will send out first responders because I don't want you to harm you. I want to help you. That's the best thing that I could do for you. That's the totally appropriate thing to do if someone is actually in that state. They need more help than a phone call can give. If that was because that they were angry at me and they were expressing it in that way, then if they get police knocking on their door, (laughs) this is again an extreme example, or if they know that that's what I will do is I will take them very seriously. It's not that I'm going to blow them off, but I'm going to take them so seriously that we're going to go into action. Then typically that kind of behavior stops real fast. Right, because the outcome is felt so deeply. The outcome is felt, and they also, they know, like, I'm not going to just spend four hours on the phone talking them down. I'll see you in the next session. That's the kind of feel of it. So boundaries are really interesting part of this, because one of the issues with sort of borderline characteristics is that there's very permeable boundaries. And unfortunately, somebody that's reactive like this is really good at drawing you outside of your normal hula hoop and, you know, your normal frame of reference and getting you to prove to them that you love them or that you care about them or you're going to be there for them and kind of violate your own boundaries. And the proving to is happening because of this chronic feeling of instability and insecurity. So when we say prove it, it isn't because they're like have their hand on their hip go and prove it to me with their, you know, it is really this desperate sense of chronic insecurity that is needing the reassurance and the reassurance and the reassurance. And it can be really difficult in a relationship to know how to hold your own self in that dynamic because you want to be caring, take it seriously, but also not lose yourself in that journey. So let's just jump into examples. That's a great idea. So one of the things too is that there's powerful nonverbal communication, really powerful. So let's kind of talk about what can make that worse and what can make that better. Yeah, so you don't, you haven't texted me. I'm not texting you back. So what's so powerful about this is even through text, I could non-verbally give you the finger. You know what I mean? Like That's true, yeah. This is this might be a tangent, but you know, like when you're driving, you can really anticipate another car's movements and you can feel when something's off or like, ooh, get away from that car. I don't know how we do it, but we can map it and we can know when something's unpredictable. Well, that's what's happening with the nonverbal. So either if I suddenly drop off to it, I'm silent, and then you're used to getting pinged, that's an example of nonverbal. But let's just say that I put it into words and I say, never mind. I I mean, there's nothing I'm responding to. I'm just wondering where you are. So I send you something provocative like, So I haven't responded back, and so your response is, never mind. NVM. I might text you 10 times, hello, hello, hello. You know, with with exceedingly more emoticons and explanation points. Right. So my receiving of that, depending on the processes, I could feel guilty or it's likely going to piss me off. Right. It's kind of like, wait, I obviously would have responded to you if I could. So I'm going to have a self-defensive response. 
So what would make that worse would be if Anne were to then jump into rescue mode, start really trying to engage me, anything like that. So different ways I could engage. One of the things is like, oh no, you're going to feel really upset. I've got to get in there and take care of you. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I could jump in this in over caretaking way easily. And it makes it worse because basically we've now rewarded the depression or the antagonism. Like in other words, the indirect aggression. Thank you. It's the indirect aggression. We've rewarded that because now guess what? You're right on the other line of the, the other right. end of the phone again, which right. is really what that was about. It could piss me off and now I'm going to distance from you and be aggressive and not respond at all. And just like, fine, I'm just not going to respond at all. And so then what can often happen is then, again, that can make it worse because folks that are in that state, we, when we are in that state, can get more dysregulated and elevate but let's go for what should happen, just so that we're focusing on the what to do. So what I would want to do in that situation is to note that it evokes something in me first. Oh and my God, it's the breath again, isn't it? It is, it is. Now, I, have I hadn't to, thought of that. If I don't think about what it evoked in me first, because it's going to evoke something in me based on our history, right? Like this is predictable, it's frustrating. So it's going to evoke something in me to be doubted, to be questioned, or to be to feel the provocation. So if I don't recognize my own aggression around that provocation, that I'm going to respond insincerely. That doesn't mean I act on it from aggression, but I need to recognize like, oh, that's so hard for me when that happens. So I'm going to recognize me in this process, then slow down and take the breath. And then I'm going to recognize you to say, I know that you're activated. I know that you're, you know, prompted, but I think I'm going to boundary set. I'm going to say, Hey, I was not able to text you earlier because I was busy. So once I recognize my own feelings and experience in that, then I'm going to see you in that and go, you're having a bunch of strong feelings, but I need you to tell me what they are. And this is what's your, happening inside your body, right? Yeah. Like, okay, I need to know what these feelings are, right? Because I don't know if I messed up. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't want to just assume you're off. Maybe I really should have responded because especially if I have some dismissing characteristics, I might've gone AWOL for the day, right? So First of all, I'm going to recognize my own aggression in it and then kind of calm it down. Now I'm going to see you, but I need you to tell me more directly. Exactly. So part of the goal here to make it better is that to not read people's nonverbals. We use the text example. It's not exactly nonverbal, but you could easily translate that into something that was... Right. I'm reading your exclamations. <laughs> so they are verbal, but they're different ways. And you're sending me, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> so I might respond to say, hey, I'm here. What's going on with you? What's going on? How are you? Exactly. So I'm going to make you name it. That is really important. Exactly that. So we're going to not mind read. So if you're the one that is getting all the texts, you might very well know what has just happened. I'm not saying you don't know. But what I am saying is that we are in the world of adults at this point, And we're going to pull ourselves back up to that where we use words. And not to say that when we're, we all go in that state, when we quit using our words, we're in more of a primitive state. So when you say we're going to go into adults, that's for all of us. When we get aggressive, we get into more of a regressed place for all of us. So we have to ask each other and help each other relationally come back to the experience of use your words. It sounds like you're upset. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. So that basically, if you begin to require me to use my prefrontal cortex and use words and explain it to you, that's already going to help, actually. If I let you do it, if I do it, it will help. It will definitely help. Like, I'm here, right? I'm going to 
pull you into, because if I just entice the reactivity, then we're all bets are off. But what you're saying is, is if I can be relational, you could help your body calm down and come into a prefrontal cortex. So that doesn't mean it works immediately. So let's say she says, tell me more or whatever. And you <laughs> say, are you kidding me? <laughs> which is not how, like, that's kind of therapy speak, but. <laughs> that is how I speak. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm like, what do you mean tell you more? You know what the hell, you know. So there's the aggression. Then again, I'm going to have to regulate. Yeah, I'm and not going to get to say, and I might actually at this point, depending on where I am, to say, hey, I love you. I could hear you're angry. I think we're going to have to talk about this more later, but. I hear you're angry. Yeah, and that you're open to I'm hearing more. I'm open to hearing more. I, I think the, the answer is I'm open to hearing more, but I'm not open to just being a punching bag. And so there's a very big difference of being open to hearing more, especially if you start using critical kind of pejorative language. Yeah, if I language. begin to get abusive, right. then it's appropriate to set a boundary. If you begin to use abusive language, mm-hmm. like you're a jerk, da, 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 I get to say, hey... I might have done something, we will figure it out, mm-hmm. but that's not acceptable. Which so is not going to be what I'm wanting in that moment because I'm actually wanting contact. Right. So if I lose contact by the big expressiveness, again, initially, it's not going to go so well with me. But over time, if you're attending to me being relational with you and I lose contact when I get out of the range and I'm either being abusive or what have you, like you're gonna make me tell you about it. That's already like, I don't wanna say half the battle, but when you create a frame of this is acceptable, this isn't acceptable, I'm here. Let's think of it as like a, a floor or you know some, what, do I, what am I trying to say? Like the bar, like right, a, right. there's a bar of what, how we treat each other and can you write me a letter even, you know, like put in word, like what have I done to upset you? Cause I can tell right. that you're really upset because what you're really doing is you're taking them more seriously than they're taking themselves. Well, and you're attuning to them. You want to take them seriously. You want exactly. to be able to bring them into being able to name because maybe I really have done something. Maybe it's a provoked state, but the thing that's really challenging on my end is as humans, Ray, we tend to, when we feel accused unjustifiably, we tend to evoke the defense system. And that's going to evoke my whole body that wants to either attack, run, flee. So because my defense system is up, if I'm not holding myself, I'm going to get really reactive and I'm going to join you and become more like, I can't believe you're treating me this way and get self-righteous. Right. But then you're also holding me because say you know me well enough to know. That's how I stay out of my self-righteousness. Yes. Go ahead. Let's say you know me well enough to know that I can be very passionate. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that's different between somebody with a more reactive neural network than somebody that is more actually intentional, like cool and cold, like what well, we're going to be talking about more about malignant narcissism is that whatever state that I'm in in this moment, I might be really ugly to you in the moment, but I'm not actually going to stay there. Once my body gets regulated again, I'll probably be right back in your lap. So if you can remember that on your side, so holding your own in this case is holding yourself, but it's also remembering two things about me. It's one, not to be overly responsive to my, acting out. my young acting out right, that kind of communication. So you're setting good boundaries of how to reach you. But then on the other hand, knowing, having kind of a thick skin and knowing that I'm just super in pain. I'm a redhead. Scared. I'm a redhead. I, I'm, or I'm <laughs> Italian or whatever. It's like, ah! and then I'm better. Or I'm going to break up with you or I'm going to never be your friend again. And then just give it some hours. And that doesn't mean to not, we're not dismissing it more. It's like we're holding them very lovingly and warmly 
that's like, oh God, you know, that's Sue. She flies off the handle, but we'll talk about this tomorrow. But she's loving and passionate in other places. And I want to emphasize, it's really important to emphasize that holding your own isn't just, even though the title is holding your own with difficult personality traits, holding your own is not like I'm the victim in this dynamic, right? And that's why I mentioned how easy it is to get self-righteous, to get judgmental, to get critical. Holding your own is also, what is your own attachment style? What is your own strategy when you get upset and how much awareness do you have of it so that you stay in a relational way instead of your nervous system becoming overreactive. So holding your own is takes a lot on yourself to go, why am I all of a sudden becoming critical and self-righteous over you and feeling justified rather than going, whoa, I need to calm my own system and stay relational and see what I know about you in my history and hold you in that loving, caring, relational way. And that's not always easy. No, definitely. It's not always easy. So let's also just go a little bit more into the unconscious about some of what's happening, like the defenses that are used. And I had already mentioned the uh, malignant narcissism on one side. On the other side, you heard us talk about idealization and devaluation. And really, like if we could summarize that, if you haven't heard it yet, if you can stay close to someone without idealizing them or devaluing them, you're in pretty good shape if you're coming from somebody that's more blue or that's more on the narcissistic end of things. With this side, with the reactivity, there's a different kind of split. There's definitely devaluation and then there's definitely idealization. That definitely does happen. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is more, it's a different kind of split. It's basically, I love you, I hate you. Or I'm beautiful and sexy I'm a piece of crap. I'm beautiful and sexy. I'm, a, you know, it's the split is more that way. Think of it like a split. And like, if I'm looking at you, there's a split inside of you. And I'm either going to see this part of you or that part of you or me, you're going to see this part of me or this part of me. And the other part, kind of, when you talk about the split, the other part kind of goes away. So you're either going to see the idealized self and the devalued part is going to just be invisible in a way to my awareness or the devalued, but can't hold both of them. Where in narcissism, you can, you have the idealized self and then- It stays and stays and stays. And then when you devalue, part of it is you're holding both and you're just like, wait. And you're gone. I, I want you to be this idealized self, so I'm gonna criticize and fix you and change you so that you will move back up to that idealized stage and like this whole belief. Or I'm gonna leave because now you're no longer fueling my narcissistic supply. You know, you're no longer useful to me. Right. So I'm gonna start looking over the fence and seeing what's next. So the devaluing takes over and then I disengage and leave. Where we're saying in this dynamic that it's more of a split, more of a flip. Yeah, it's a flip. And what can be helpful is to think about this both in holding the person that you love that's reactive or your own reactive self is think of kind of like a disco ball. Think of a disco ball. That at any given moment, one part is bright, light, lit and lighted. One part is lit. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, at least we're not trying to come across as too fancy or anything, you know. (laughs) So one part is lit. But then with anything, it shifts a little bit and another part is illuminated and then another part. It's very complex and there's all these gradations and that's really cool. And that's not the way it is when we're in these more regressed states. So it's almost like if I could see you and what part of you is forward right now, but remember that you have all these other gradations. So like right now you might be pretty closed off to me because I've upset you, but I can hold that 
This is transient. This is transient. And one of the issues is that we lose complexity. And so one of the goals is to get back to complexity in ourselves, how we see ourselves as complex and how we see each other. But part of understanding that is to develop deeper insight and understanding with that flip that can happen. You know, that flip happens and it's not an intentional flip, but it is a psychic flip that it's very hard to not have that splitting of selves when you struggle with this kind of personality dynamic. Exactly. And so the general aim, your North Star, is we're looking for complexity, stability, because again, the problem is that things are so rocky. So there's stability in it. And, other, and also, you can feel the similarity to narcissism, where that I can have just thrown, you know, a huge adult tantrum. And that doesn't make me a shameful person. It's because of my history, like this complex view where that I'm the same person through it. So there's stability in it. And then the last piece of it is that it's like a realistic view. So I can see myself in generally the way that people see me and I see other people in this more stable way too. So just those, what you're saying is, is those are the things that when you have a history of the borderline type of high reactive dynamics, that that is really hard for you to do. And it turns into what to do, what can make it better is if you keep those concepts in mind, then it can at least give you a lane that you're going in. Let's do another example. Can so we? if just to follow up, this, so if I, my being in relation to you and that experience, it would be holding to me to really hold that this moment is not all of you. Exactly. And, right. and, 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 to, and so, to reflect that back to me. Right. And to this, even reflect that back to me. Right. This moment is not everything in our history. So when you might go into a place of everything's gone to hell in a handbasket, everything's horrible, my job in that is to hold that this is a moment and to help you hold that. Oh, man, if I looked up and saw calm and peace in your eyes when I'm doing that, that would get us halfway there for sure. Because already now you're indicating safety, which is going to calm my body down. Right. And if I, especially if I stay kind of in a constant fear of longing for connection with you, but fearing losing you, right, which is the undercurrent that happens in this dynamic. So I'm longing for a connection, but I fear that for sure you're going to exit. I'm in... It's inevitable. It's inevitable. So the state of complete turmoil that has no rational anchor. So to look at somebody and go, wait, the, your eyes looking at me are not looking at me like I'm crazy, like I'm an idiot, like I'm the meanest person in the world. You're looking at me in a stable way and holding. That's communicating to me that even if I could lose it, I'm not going to lose you. I love that. I think that's really well said. And like, here's a, you know, as an example, a flashpoint is separations. Because remember that part of the underlying dynamic is the sphere of abandonment. I mean, it can be as subtle as even like ending a phone call or going to sleep because that's an ending, but definitely leaving, like exiting for some reason, you know, even to work, but especially like leaving for the weekend or leaving for a week. Like I might begin to get upset about that, but if you're holding like, oh, this is that thing that Sue does. And transitions are really hard Transitions for are hard. And I'm going to remind you that I'm going almost again, if you think about it as a young self, and how you would leave a child, that there would be predictability and reliability. And I'm not saying to belittle the person, the adult that has this reactivity, but what's going to happen is the more that it's predictable and reliable like that, even if I'm pushing back and forth, you can feel the stabilization. So I think there's two things. One is that you're not going to let me abuse you or be disrespectful to you. So there's a floor, 
But then there's also the hug and, you know, the understanding and the care. And that's that's kind of the picture, I think. That's a great way to put it, Sue. I love that. There's the boundaries, which we tend to always talk about in trying to deal with something like this, is we just boundary, boundary, boundary. But you're saying is, is there's the floor, the boundary that says, here's the limit. I'm not going to let you, and I'm going to call you down on that when you're there or protect myself from it. But I'm also going to put my arm around you and both of those. And, And as you hear this, I want to help you hear that. You can relate to this, whether you have any borderline kind of characteristics for you or like, I guess we all do. But even when we're in major fights with somebody we love, you can see these dynamics that come out for all of us. And you can feel the safety in your body that builds when you feel the borderline, you know, the border, I mean, the holding of the boundary, but also the arm around you, that there's an overall healing process and that can make a complete major change in a relationship with somebody that it's like, I can count on you. And the nervous system, and that's what we're all about, right? Our nervous system does shift. It does change. This isn't just about learning to tolerate each other. It's learning to build security between you and inside you. So you keeping the arm around and say, I care about you instead of, oh God, here you go again. Like I'm going to be leaving and I know this is going to be hard. So, hey, maybe I'm going to leave a note hidden under your pillow or something that says, I have constancy while I'm gone. And I'm going to be sure that you know that. That's so, you, when you start talking like that, it's always so sweet. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of almost didn't want to say anything so that people could just absorb you. You can pause me if you want to. That's okay. <laughs> but just as we roll around to wrap this up, there's so much to say. And yeah. uh, always look at the show notes. We always pack stuff in there. But just another distinction I was just thinking about as you were talking so we've moved from talking about a more narcissistic orientation, self-orientation, which remember for everybody is about achievement and I'm using other people to maintain my sense of self. And what's really different when you are in this dynamic that we're talking about today, there's this deep hunger and a deep longing. And I am still using you in some ways to stabilize myself, but it's really from almost the other side of the coin. And what's good about that, the prognosis is really positive about that. But I just, I think we should just say though, but if somebody isn't responding to the boundaries and to the love and the boundaries and the love, we're kind of oversimplifying that. But if it gets worse, you know, when we're in a borderline state, we can really run people off. There are limits. And, you know, you have to check in with yourself of like, are you being treated well enough? Are they responding to your efforts to understand and your efforts to set boundaries? And if they're not, then that's the, you know, we keep talking about it kind of because we're thinking of it from treatment too. But if you're in a relationship with somebody and they will not kind of come along with you in this, these agreements of boundaries and love and boundaries and love that we're not going to tell you what to do, but just those, that would be more of a, if the person that you're with isn't willing to look at their destructive behavior, that's a big one. No matter what relationship you're in, whether what it's a really big one. And in these dynamics, because as, as Sue mentioned at the very beginning, there really is a big neurological component that's creating a lot of emotional ups and downs and instability. It's really good to seek help. Get somebody in there, not just for both of you, but get somebody in there. There's ways to teach emotional regulation and boundary setting and to do it collaboratively. So get somebody, especially if there is a high sense of self-harm and that is not something to be handled alone. You need help. You need support. You need somebody to call. And especially if for whatever reason you decide and 
that this relationship isn't going to work for you and you feel like you've been in there and you need out, you need some professional support likely or some really good emotional support to know that you're worth it, that you exist and that you don't disappear in that relationship with the other person. Because guess what? It doesn't help them for you to disappear. And so it's really easy to feel like you're doing something like rejecting or abandoning or participating in really harming this other person if you don't disappear into them. And that actually isn't true, right? It is not good for anybody to be able to have that much power and control in a relationship. It's good for neither of you. So holding your own boundaries and support, asking for other support is healthy for you and them. And you're really important. You can't disappear in anybody. So if you feel like you can't exist, you need support and help. And it may be one, if it's significant enough, you might need help getting out. I love that. That's right. If your rescue efforts aren't working, (laughs) then they're not working. And probably more rescue efforts aren't going to be all that helpful. Right. If you're stuck in the rescuer and there's never the, like you talked about the internal part of that triad where you feel all three of them, if you're stuck in one of those dynamics, the victim, the perpetrator, or the rescuer, you need help because in a balanced relationship, you need all three. And it's important because you can have a very balanced relationship. Because remember, somebody with borderline, the type of dynamics and traits, that's not all of them. That's one aspect of them. We are all very big people. We're not any one thing. Yeah, remember the disco ball. Exactly. We are all a bunch of things. So we need to help everybody bring the deeper sense of their security out by really checking in with ourselves and being our best selves in our relationships. Man, it's just good therapy talking to you like that. It really, uh, and I'm so glad that people are tuning in and listening. As far as resources go, again, check our show notes. We've also done several episodes. The one that Ann mentioned earlier, 59, 60, 61, the one that's on the red, we go more into depth about some of this reactivity. That would be maybe a good resource. And same with the tie-dye. Same with the tie-dye. Yeah, you're right. Same with the tie-dye. Lots of discussion about this. One of my favorite books, and I'm, I'm not remembering the name of it right this moment, but I promise you it is in the show notes, and you would go to therapistuncensored.com, episodes, and then you find the episode, and it's right there. But there's a couple of really good books from the perspective of someone who self-identified as borderline and their treatment trajectory, and it was actually recommended to me by a client that struggles with this, and it is so beautiful and so hopeful. So that might be another follow-up. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. So wrapping up. So this is, again, part of our series. We decided to do this particular one today because we had been talking about narcissism and narcissism, but we're going to go back next time and talk about the, one of some of the most destructive elements and kind of how to hold your own with malignant narcissism and antisocial personality. Right. The ones we've been discussing up until now are those elements that we all can relate to. We all struggle with parts of it. And sometimes it gets more and more and more rigid and more and more difficult. The next two ones, just to reiterate, are when they actually cross the line into a, you know, dynamics that we really need to watch for. You guys, let us know how this is going, our little experiment, because we have so much to say, and obviously it's hard to pack it in, but let us know. Is this too much, too little? Do you have questions on future episodes in the series? We can answer them. 
Yeah, you can jump on our website at www.therapistuncensored.com. I always can tell I'm from Texas when I say that. www. Therapist- <laughs> well, how else would it sound? <laughs> I'm sure somebody from East Coast, y'all da- can leave w- me. W- That's Texan. <laughs> so jump on and you can actually leave us a speak pipe message and talk to us directly. On oh, that's there. actually such a fun, cool thing. Yeah, I love it. We hear from from our listeners all the time. Yeah, and you get that when you go to the website. It's I think it's on the Contact Us page. There's a little button, you press it, and then you can speak directly to us, and then we will send you a message directly back. But you can let us know how it's going for you. All right, so thanks for joining us. And if you like this, rate and review us. We'd sure appreciate it. But until then, we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.